Okay, try again. Uh, welcome everyone. Chanting is important. It's there for a purpose. It's there to give us uh, encouragement. It's um, it's not like it's essential. Obviously, you couldn't claim that chanting is an essential part of Buddhist practice. That would be sila bhatta paramasa. That would be attachment to rites or rituals. <clears throat> but ritual, in and, its, in and of itself, isn't a bad thing. Ritual serves to catch your attention, focus your attention. Meditation is a kind of a ritual behavior. To focus your mind on the body and on, on the feelings and on the thoughts and on the emotions and so on. On reality. Now chanting isn't focusing on reality, but it's there to give us encouragement. It's focusing our mind on the Buddha, focusing our mind on the Dhamma, focusing our mind on the Sangha. This is important because we need encouragement. We need that kind of encouragement where we're going. We're like uh, pioneers setting out to boldly go where no one has gone before. Well, some have gone where we've never gone before. To unchartered Charted? Uncharted. Uncharted waters. Yeah. Like setting out on a great journey that we don't know uh, exactly what the end, what's at the end. We only know that it's worth going. We only get, have some inkling of an idea that there's uh, good to be had here. We have this faith or confidence. But it's a scary thing. The way we're going is not a simple path or not an easy path. Without encouragement from time to time, it's easy to get discouraged, to lose heart, to give up and to turn back. To give up and get lose one's way, lose your way. You need encouragement to keep you going, to keep you on the straight path. We, first of all, it's a path that is unknown to us. It's a path that's unfamiliar, as I said. There's nothing like uh, our lives up into this point, up into the point where we began to look inside. All our lives we've been taught to look outside. For the most part we're taught to learn about the things around us, learn about uh, objects, learn about people, learn about places, learn skills that we can use in the real world outside of us. <clears throat> we're never people who look inside are called uh, dreamers or uh, they call this imagination right people who are caught up in imaginary things and they say all the stuff in the mind it's just imaginary what's real is the world around us live in the real world, don't live in dreams, don't live in your imagination. And we're taught to, to, to strive and to reach for things, to crave for things. We're taught ambition We're taught that to be happy you need you need to be successful in the world around you. You need to get the things that you want. 
taught that this is how to find happiness. We're taught that we're not good enough. No? We're taught that we have to be more, more like our role models, more like the movie stars. We're taught to pretend, we're taught to be socially uh, socially capable, no? Socially, what's the word? We're taught how to be social animals, how to socialize, how to be witty and how to play a role in society. Just the words play a role in society. It's very much like a stage, like Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. <clears throat> this is kind of what it comes to be when you begin to break it down, and begin, to begin to look at what's really going on. But it's 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 not it's not comforting to break it apart. It's not comforting to lose your illusions. It's not comforting to give up your beliefs. It's not comforting to let go. There's so many things that anchor us, who we are that uh, letting go is a very scary thing. But I think even more basic than that, we, we have to admit that whether we practice meditation, the Buddha's teaching, or whether we just decide to live an ordinary life in the world, we're on a journey together. We're on a quite dangerous journey with uh, lots of scary things waiting for us. And so we need we need encouragement and we need strength and uh, we need patience and we need endurance. We need all sorts of good qualities to face these things. Even if we don't practice meditation, even if we're not uh, interested in the Buddha's teaching, even if we go home and say, look, this is too difficult for me, why can't I just live? I think I'll just live an ordinary life. We're not thereby freed from the Buddha's teaching, you see. It's not like if we leave, if we say, no, no, I'm not Buddhist, we can't just say, I'm not Buddhist, so no old age, no sickness, no death for me. That's, that's Buddhism. I don't believe in it. Can we do that? No. Because these are things that non-Buddhists have to deal with as well. That are common to everyone. These are the dangers that are common to everyone. Birth is the common to everyone. Old age is common to everyone. Sickness and death are common to everyone. No one can escape from these things. Life is 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 uh, it's quite brief. If you think about how long you've been on this earth, don't you do you remember when you were only eight years old? You're only eight years old now, aren't you? Next. <laughs> I remember when I was eight years old. It feels very just like yesterday. It's many years ago. Where did life go that we're now here sitting in this room together after all these years? It's going by very quickly. Some of us are already experiencing the beginnings of old age. Even I, my hair is starting to fall out. I'm not old by any 
any uh, meaning of the word. But this is what's ahead of us, old age, sickness, death. And then birth again. Birth, old age, sickness, death. They say that when you die, you remember everything or, or many things. Everything that you've clung to or everything that's had an impression on your mind will come back to you when you die. This is what they say. This is Buddhist theory as well. It's, but it's, if you ever heard, it's apparently, it's, it's something very common, commonly known thing that somehow your whole life flashes before your eyes, right? When you're in danger or when you're uh, threatened with, with physical suffering, when you're threatened with death. But, uh, it, it, it apparently carries through to clinical studies as well. They've studied people who died, people whose brain stopped working, who had cardiac arrest, their heart stopped, and then the brain lost all oxygen, uh, I don't know, the brain stopped working, no brain activity. And if they did it, sometimes they, they learned to, how to care for these people and how to resuscitate them. Even hours later, they now have people who have been dead with no brain activity. That means nothing in the brain is working for hours. And then they come back and they talk about it. And they say during the time that their brain was dead, that they saw, uh, sometimes saw many things that that had happened in their lives. They'll often see dead people. They'll, um, some people see heaven, some people see hell, some people see all sorts of things. The mind makes up these stories based on its life. In Buddhism we believe one of three things, you'll see one of the three things when, you're, uh, when your brain stops working, when you, when you finish the body. One, you'll see a karma that you've performed Two, you'll see a, an image of the karma that you performed. Or three, you'll see a, a, an image or a story or a, a, a vision based on where you're going to next. And so there may be many things, but at the final moment, when you, when you really leave the body and go on to your next life, one of these three things will catch you. The kama, kama kama nimitta, or gati, gati nimitta. This is how we, 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 we go as humans. This is what we have to look forward to. Death isn't really a scary thing, but it's something that um, judges, every, judges our whole life in one moment and puts an end to everything. If we cling to things, if we hold on to things, it may not seem like much now because we're sitting here, we're not dead. We're not dying. But when you're dying, it's, it can be incredibly scary and dis disconcerting. For most people, old age is just, just getting old is a very scary thing because of how much we cling to the body, how we cling to ourselves. Just getting bald is a feel you feel like I'm bald, I'm going bald. No. For me, it's not a big deal, I'm already bald. But, you know, when your teeth start turning color, and chipping and then cavities and falling out, you have to get false teeth. It really is uh, depressing for people. When you start having aches and, and start losing energy, when you start forgetting things, when you start forgetting things, it's a very scary thing. Some people end up forgetting most of who they are. Can have a great difficulty remembering people and places and things and, and, and all the things in their lives. Some people, I met one woman who had a stroke and uh, her brain just, just wasn't working right after that. She couldn't talk correctly. She was confused all the time. 
these are the dangers that this is a danger that's ahead of us. We don't know people who have cancer, old age, sickness, death. This might come to us. How many? What percentage of the population gets cancer? Probably at least one person in this room will. At least one person in this room will, will get cancer. It's like roulette with Russian roulette. We pick one. <laughs> one of you. <laughs> Could you imagine if I said? Before you leave this room, we have to pick straws, and whoever gets the short straw gets cancer. How would you feel about that? If you've ever seen one of those those Twilight Zone movies, it's kind of like a Twilight Zone movie or show. So it was this old show when I in the eighties. <laughs> was before your time, no? I've seen it. Twilight Zone. That would be a horrible thing if I said, I'm I have the power to give one of you cancer and we're going to draw lots. That's really how life is. <clears throat> we don't know which lot we're going to get. These are the dangers ahead of us. So this is, this is something that should shake us up and say, I need, I need a refuge. So why do we take the Buddha as our refuge? Why do we take the Dhamma as our refuge? Why do we take the Sangha as our refuge? We're, we're freaked out by this. No? We, we need something, some support. These are the dangers that we have ahead of us. So we take the Buddha as our refuge like a boat. Here we are in, in the ocean. And we take this as our protection against these things. We can protect ourselves against birth, old age, and death by practicing the Buddha's teaching, by taking the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha as our refuge. Because these are only really a danger for people who do, who do bad things. So if we are engaged in good things, we still have to get old, sick, and die. We can't avoid this, but we take the bite out of it. Some people, when they die, they die quite peacefully. When when they're gone, they go to a good place. Their their mind is is headed in a in a headed towards purity. Other people, even the slightest pain, and they 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 become quite upset. I know someone. Uh, I know someone like this who. Every, the littlest, the slightest pain, and it becomes quite um, afflicted by 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 any sort of pain. Can't take the pain. And it's because of karma. When you've done bad things, when you've hurt others, it it can be quite frightening. And and when you're close to death, it's the most terrifying thing because you start to feel the burden. Uh, there's a movie, I don't think anyone here has seen it, but this movie Angulimala. You know the story of Angulimala? Well, in Thai, you know, you've seen probably the Indian one version, but the Thai version is quite quite well done. At one point he's, he's, well, when he's chasing after the Buddha, it's just the most impressive scene. They did a really good job of it. You, everything comes back to him. Suddenly he's surrounded by dead bodies. And he's running after the Buddha. He climbs up this hill and there's zombies grabbing at him, ah, all the people he's killed. And it's just it's so oppressive. The whole scene is just, you can feel the, the weight of the karma bearing down upon him. So all of us, don't have, we don't have so much to worry about. But we have to ask ourselves, will I be ready for what comes? Will I be ready to face these things? For most of us, the answer is not really. We'll probably wind up sad and and afraid. So we we come here to practice meditation. This is a very useful thing for this purpose. It prepares you. It's like why do you go and practice and train in kung fu? So that when the big kids, when the bullies pick on you, you say, "I know kung fu." You're not afraid of them anymore because you can you can fight back. So meditation is a way of fighting back. Meditation is incredible in this way. 
once your mind is strong, you can fight back. But again, anything, anyone can say anything to you. Not anything can happen to you. You can break a leg, you can break an arm, you can break your back and become paralyzed. Nothing phases you. This is the power of the mind. Can you imagine that? If you broke your back, would you be able to be happy? I don't know kung fu yet, mind kung fu yet. I have to teach you some mental kung fu. The power of the mind, it's very useful. So these are the dangers that we have to face anyway, and we have to learn to face them. They're the dangers that meditation helps us to face. There are other dangers that we do away with, dangers that we should be aware of uh, in, in case we're thinking of leaving the Buddha's teaching. See, it's, a, it's like a cult. You can't leave or we send, <laughs> we send these dangers after you. It's a mafia. You know, <laughs> the, what's the, what's the uh, pen punishment for apostasy in Buddhism? Listen up. We're not like the we're not like some religions where they if you apostasy means means uh, denying the religion or changing your religion, giving up the religion. In some religions, they kill you if you commit apostasy. They hunt you down and and kill you, stone you to death or something, put you in a pit and throw stones at you until you die, or cut off your head. I don't know how they do it. Hang you in many ways. But in Buddhism, if you leave, we don't have to do anything. The punishment for apostasy. No, the, there's no punishment for apostasy because non-Buddhists can be very good people. But if you go contrary to the Buddha's teaching, it's like God. If God tells you you have to do this or that and you don't do it, you do the opposite, God punishes you. Well, in Buddhism, it's not like if you don't do what the Buddha says, if you do the opposite of what the Buddha says, he doesn't punish you. Because the Buddha's teaching is based on wisdom. There's no need to punish anyone. If you don't do the things the Buddha said, you won't be free from suffering. If you do the things the Buddha told you not to do, you can be assured of suffering. What are the sufferings that come to people who practice contrary to how the Buddha taught? There's four as well. Let's see if I can remember them. First one is you blame yourself. See? What's worse than blaming yourself? If I come and hunt you down, at least you can blame me. But if you go around hurting other people, killing other beings, stealing things, no one who does that can feel good about themselves, not for long. I always refer back to this book by uh, Dostoevsky, I think. Crime and Punishment, the English title is Crime and Punishment. It's a wonderful book, very Buddhist. It was written by someone who knows the punishment for crime. You know what the true punishment for crime is? The true punishment for crime is your own mind. This man, he kills a woman, he kills two women. As a experiment, actually. It's really a weird... I mean, it's a philosophical book. You have to, hard to explain. But he kills them, and, and he thinks he can be above it. Well, it's actually easy. He thinks of Napoleon. Napoleon was this guy in France who, who, uh, more than just a guy, no. He was some guy in France who decided he was going to take over the world, and he got to he got to Moscow, and and the the, the Russian winter got the better of him, and he died. Or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I read War and Peace very quickly, so I, I don't really know what happened. But he was very successful. And he managed to uh, get quite far in his delusions. But this man thinks, well, Napoleon, Napoleon was above the law, and Napoleon was above punishment. Nobody ever punished Napoleon 
they couldn't. He was an emperor. And so he thought, well, maybe I could be such a person. And he thought about himself and he said, well, if I, am a, if I were above the law, then I should be able to kill anyone for any reason. He had, you know, he had this philosophy worked out. He actually wrote a paper about it, apparently. And so he kills this woman just because he wants some money. And, and then he realizes that he isn't Napoleon. I think it's, it's a bit skewed in that way, because I don't think even Napoleon could escape his, the sufferings of his own mind. Everyone thought, many people thought he was a brilliant man and wonderful, a hero or so on. But if he was really responsible for so many deaths, it's, uh, it's these kind of things catch up with you. But if you read it really caught up with this man, he, he really, finally, eventually, he, he just turns himself in. In the end, he just walks into the police, police office and says, I killed this woman. Because they, they had... Uh, exonerated him or, or they, they, they realized they figured it wasn't him and so on but he turns himself in the Buddha said it's like um, like a dark cloud when you sit alone nobody has to see you commit a crime no one has to know that you've committed a crime you know that you've committed the crime you're the one who punishes yourself all the bad things that we do when we hurt others we hurt ourselves we feel guilty about these things we feel very bad that we feel bad is actually a good sign. It's better than being a psychopath and not realizing how bad we are becoming, going further and further. They say, well, bad people don't really feel guilty about it, and that's really because they're so corrupt already. If you have a big pile of dirt and you throw some more dirt in, it doesn't really get dirtier. Right? If your pants are all stained and color discolored and you drop some spaghetti on them, you don't really notice it, you can, no problem, like my robes, right? There's lots of stains and dirt and so on, so a little more doesn't, doesn't hurt anything. The first one. The second one is other people blame you when they do know. For sure other people blame you. No one likes a thief except other thieves. No one likes a liar. No one trusts a liar. Good people blame you. The worst thing in the world is to be disdained by good people, no? Because we're all able to find friends, but... And in fact, it's easy to find bad friends, right? People who are not ethical or not... Um, Judicial, no, I don't know who, who, who uh, don't have morals and principles. People who are unprincipled. Well, it's easy to be their friend, you know. And just bribe them or you know, tell them jokes and and I don't mean that's nothing to do with the jokes that I'm telling here. I'm not trying to say anything about anyone in this room, obviously. But. Uh, you know, you, you get in on their good side and, and they're very quickly, they're not discerning. But there's nothing you can do if you're, if you're not a good person. Very difficult to get in with good people. This is always something that I realized is very scary. That these people, some, some people, they just look at you and say, I don't want to go near that person. Looking back on my uh, when I was younger, it's funny how I never realized that there were good people all around me, and I thought, eh, people aren't drinking, people aren't doing drugs, people who aren't into rock and roll and partying. And when I look back and think of how they looked at me, it's kind of shameful. It's a scary thing to not to not be. Um, appreciated or not be accepted by wise people, by good people. When they see that you've done bad things, they don't want to have anything to do with you. When they see the corruption in your mind, it's a scary thing. The third one is punishment. Not only do people hold you 
accountable, but you become accountable. So the law gets to you, or um, people seek revenge on you, or your karma just catches up with you, and you have to face it. And the fourth one is dugati, that uh, you're not only punished in this life, but you're punished in the next life as well. It's an important point, really. Um, it makes, it, it shows how important it is to make a decision on this rebirth thing. Because a lot of Buddhists say, meh, rebirth, it's not really important. <clears throat> and they generally say that because they don't really want to believe in it themselves and they know that they doubt it but they like the Buddha's teaching they like the Buddha's teaching a lot but they don't like that teaching on rebirth and they try to say well that's not really what the Buddha taught the Buddha just taught about the present moment right don't worry about the future So, uh, on, uh, and, and there's something to that on a core level. If you're in the present moment at all times, you really don't have to worry about the future. But, you know, in, unless you can get to that point where you're always here and now, you're probably going to be, you're probably going to die with defilements in your mind. And so just burying your head in the sand and forgetting about it doesn't really solve the problem. The Tibetans are really good at this apparently. They, they actually teach people about what to do when you die, how to behave when you die. They, they theorize about it and they, not even, not just theorize, but based on what people have told them, you know, the things that people have said. This is a, this is a real, real um, use. As I said, there's this, there's this study going on now. There's, they're realizing that 10 to 20 percent of people who have who, who come back from the dead, right? Who, whose heart stops, whose brain stops working, and then and then actually come back are resuscitated. Have had have had experiences during that time of something like an afterlife, <clears throat> and are able to recount these very vivid descriptions of either of, of the present time or, or or of the the the, the the you know the hospital or so on. Sometimes they see the doctors working on them and hear them talking and so on. That they're floating above themselves, looking down or something. And uh, and and some, but sometimes they they have visions that are otherworldly. You know, in in the West, apparently, we see tunnels. This must be something to do with our culture, because in India, apparently, they don't, they don't see tunnels. So it's very subjective. It's based on the mind. But based on these, if we could put these together and he hear about what people talk about, it would be quite interesting as Buddhists to kind of prepare for that. Because the understanding is that this isn't it. I mean, think about it. When the brain dies, there is the potential for consciousness. This is, uh, from my point of view, is quite clear. The studies are quite clear. It's not something really open for debate anymore. Well, it's always open for debate, and it certainly is hotly denied by <coughs> by scientists, but it appears not for long. So it's something that we have to think about. If you've sullied your mind and thinking, it's okay, I'm going to die soon, I'll get away with it. Once I die, that's it, I don't have to put up with I don't have to. Maybe I feel a little bit guilty for the things I've done, that's okay. Lots of money. Right, lots of power. We should never be complacent. The Buddha said, I see people who do one small bad deed and then go to hell for it. There's a story of this queen. What's her, what was her name? Mak Makali? Was that the queen? Malika? Malika yeah. Malika. Who, uh, what did she do? She lied to the king. Uh, the queen of... Pasenadi, no? Yeah. That, yeah. And uh, I shouldn't talk about it. It was quite, quite, actually, quite um, 
unsuitable. For, it's not a G story. It's at least PG-13. <laughs> we got the kids under 13. Anyway, she lies to the king about something. and uh, Other than that, she's a, quite a moral person, and she goes to see the Buddha all the time and listens to his teaching and so on. And then she dies, and Pasenadi is quite, up, quite upset. And he goes to see the Buddha, and he thinks to himself, I wonder where she, where she would have gone when she died. And he says, I'll go see the Buddha and I'll ask him. And the Buddha knows that he's coming and says, says to him, and looks and says, uh, Oh, when she died, she was thinking about, she felt guilty about lying to the king. And because of that guilt and the fear and the shame and so on, when she died, she went to hell. She went to hell for seven days. And so on the first day, Pasenadi comes to see the Buddha, and the Buddha makes a determination that Pasenadi should not ask him this question. And so Pasenadi comes, and he forgets why he's there. And he talks to the Buddha, and he says, Oh, how are you, Venerable Sir? And thank you. Oh, yes. The Buddha gives him a talk on the Dhamma, and I can't remember why I came. Anyway, he goes, home, goes back to the palace. And he remembers, Oh, how could I forget? That's okay, tomorrow I'll go and ask the Buddha. And the next day he goes again, and, he, and the Buddha makes a determination again for him to forget. And again and again and again. Apparently for seven days he was able to put it off. And on the seventh day, because why did the Buddha do that? Because he knew Basenadi wasn't very stable in his mind. He wasn't like a Sotapanna or something. He's actually supposed to be a Bodhisatta, I think. He's going to some day be a Buddha. He's one of the Bodhisattas, if I remember correctly. But uh, he wasn't really stable. So if he had asked the Buddha, the Buddha would have had to say, she's gone to hell. And Basenadi wouldn't have believed him, and he would have been quite upset at the Buddha. And he would have caused great trouble for the monks from that point on. This is how you have to deal with kings, no? It's the kind of thing we have to deal. We have to think of in this society. Sometimes we can't just um, say whatever we want. You can't always tell the truth. No? You don't want to lie. But see, even the Buddha didn't say always tell the truth. Sometimes you don't say anything. It's better. But then on the seventh day, when she 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 got out of hell, and because of all her good deeds. She went right away up to heaven. And so Pasenadi came and said, I've been trying to ask you something for seven days and somehow I just keep forgetting. I just wanted to ask you, Malika, when she passed away, where did she go? And the Buddha said, well, she went to heaven. <laughs> and he said, oh yes, well, of course, she was such a great person, how could she not go to heaven? And I said, yeah, that's the way it goes. So the Buddha said, I see people who did even one small bad deed and they, they, as a result they go to hell. And he said, but people sometimes do great bad deeds and don't go to hell. It really is, it depends on the mind. You don't really escape them, but it, it depends on the preponderance and on the, the uh, emphasis in the mind. What is in the mind when you die? It's, it's, it's not, there's no God that's going to make it all work out. It's, it's all it's quite scientific. There's no magic to it where you have to count up all the good deeds and count up all the bad deeds. It's quite random, actually. Maybe when you die, even though you've done lots of good deeds, maybe you remember when you lied to someone. It's very dangerous. Whatever you cling to, this queen, of course, she was very afraid of this for a long time because she had lied to the king. It's not a simple thing. And the truth wasn't a good thing either. If she had told the truth, it would have been quite embarrassing, this story. And so, this is another very good reason why the meditation is so important. Meditation is very much like cleaning in this regard. We take it for granted sometimes, but this is what you're doing when you meditate. All of these things are coming out, all of the things that you cling to. If this Malika, I don't know why she didn't meditate. If she had practiced meditation, she would have been very quickly become free from that. She would have been able to work through her guilt. Someone emailed me recently and um, 
he had always mistreated his mother and, and found excuses not to help her and then she moved away and got very sick and died but didn't tell him because he says because she knew he wouldn't or he, she figured he wouldn't care and she didn't want to bother him but in the time before she had gotten sick he had started practicing Buddhism and so he actually did care and he was getting ready to move to back to be to be with her and, and then he found out she was dead and he had such great I think now even now he has such great guilt in his mind which is very dangerous we shouldn't harbor this guilt we shouldn't cling to this guilt it doesn't do us any benefit we come from a tradition, I think, it's part of our Western religious tradition of torturing ourselves. We think punish, we somehow, in, we have this idea inside subconsciously that if we hurt ourselves, we, we can somehow exonerate our sins. No? The cross, bearing the cross kind of thing. Punishing yourself. Uh, of course, they had in India as well. It's actually not totally Western. In India, these people thought it was the same philosophy. If you torture yourself, you expiate all your sins. So they would stand on one leg, or they would burn themselves, or they would freeze themselves, or wash themselves in the river Ganges. I'm not sure which, which is worse. River Ganges is one of the is the most polluted river in the world, or one of the most polluted rivers in the world. But there apparently is something in the water that is healing or something. I watched a National Geographic on it once. It apparently uh, has some chemical, some properties, some some minerals in it or something. So it may actually heal. I mean, the the joke is people think the Ganges heals them, but it's actually so polluted. And they just dump dead bodies into it, and and, and so on. You know, so in in Varanasi anyway, it's it's probably not the cleanest, the best place to go swimming. Um, but no, people, this isn't torturing. People actually think that by torturing themselves, they become purified. People think that uh, jumping in the river Ganges, pur Ganga pur purifies you. And the Buddha said, well, then, in that case, all the fishes in the river Ganga are, are purified as well. <laughs> all those fishes are, are much better than you. They live in the water, the turtles, the fishes. There's crocodiles that live in the Ganga River, special crocodiles with big snouts. And they eat the fishes. Dolphins, there are apparently dol dolphins in the river Ganga, I don't know. river dolphins. Yeah. Okay, so these are the dangers for people who do bad things. How are we doing for time? I'm going to go way over time tonight. We've got four more dangers to work through. This is, I'm, I'm trying to encourage everyone, so this is, listen up. Now we're heading out on the voyage. We've realized that these dangers exist for us, and so we have to make this voyage. What are the dangers that we have to look for? It's a scary trip. It's a difficult trip. We're going to have doubts and uh, worries and we're going to have um, desires that are pulling us back. We're going to have lots of things that stop us. But I said there's four things, four dangers. These are the dangers that only come for people who try to do good things. You see, if we just give up, we won't have any of these problems. This is why people give up, because they see these problems and they turn back. The first one is waves. When we cross the ocean, we have to face the waves. We have to bear with the waves. If we've been on a boat when there's waves, they can be quite scary and make you want to turn back. The second one is crocodiles. Crocodiles scary? Would you swim across a river with crocodiles in it? scary stuff or is it alligators crocodiles I think 
The third one is whirlpools. If you cross the ocean, you have to face whirlpools. They drag you down, ship and all, drown you. And the third one is sharks. Sharks. You have to watch out for. Sharks. Have you ever seen the movie Jaws? I didn't ever watch it. But when I was on the plane once, coming back from Thailand, someone was watching it in front of me and I saw the end of it. <laughs> and it just keeps coming back, this fish. It's amazing. It must, that's, I can understand why it was such a well-received movie. Because everything they do, it just keeps coming back and back. They shoot it and it comes back. <laughs> and, and, you know, they've got this big boat and they catch it on a hook and then it starts jumping into the boat, then the boat starts sinking. And eventually they finally kill it, or they think they kill it, I don't remember if they actually, I don't know, there was a sequel, so maybe they didn't. And uh, all they've got left is a, a, a board and they're paddling back to shore. That's really a good uh, metaphor for what we're doing. We really have to have that kind of determination. Sharks. Okay, so let's go in order. The waves. What are the waves? The waves are anger, uh, boredom, frustration. It's not easy, no? It's not easy to just sit here and listen to the Dhamma. We haven't even started practicing it. You think, this is difficult. Wait until I close my mouth and force you to sit still for half an hour. It only gets more difficult from here on in. There's only more boredom and frustration. The pain comes and you get upset. When I teach you these things, I tell you, don't do this, don't do that, you get upset. When I tell you, do this, do that, you get upset. No, you can't go home. No, you can't do it. This is for monks. No, this, these teachings are for monks, actually. But it applies just as well for meditators. You can't get up, you can't... We don't have a play time, we don't have an intermission where you get to go and have milk and cookies. No. I don't even let you stretch. I should give everyone a chance to stretch after I talk. No? All of this leads one to get upset. New monks, you see this quite often in new monks. So if you're thinking of ordaining, you have to keep this in mind. No? Who's, who's going to ordain? We've got one candidate so far. <laughs> we'll see if he lasts or if the sharks get him. But the waves are the first thing they get you. This is the, the anger and the frustration. It means the inability to bear with the training, to stick with the training. It becomes unpleasant. You lose your will to do it. These things are the waves that bring us back. They scare us. They make us lose heart. It's very dangerous for new monks. You see this often. They get angry and they get upset. and. Especially nowadays, there's so much chaos in the monasteries and uh, lots of fun. But you can see these truths, you can see these dhammas working. Because some of the monks are so patient. and They may not be very good monks, but they just don't care. They don't get angry and upset. And then the new monks are like, why are all these monks not practicing? Why are these monks not keeping the rules? Why are these monks not this, not that? And who's the one who disrobes? <laughs> the one who's perfectly keeping the rules and then angry at everyone else and gets frustrated and leaves. Anger is a killer. The frustration, boredom, catches up with you. So the waves. Number two is the crocodiles. Which, one's a, what, which one has the big mouth? Crocodile or the alligator? Which alligators, alligators are indigenous in North America. Uh, which one has a longer 
longer beak. Beak? Um. <laughs> a crocodile. One has long. Well, I'm going with crocodiles anyway. Okay. Crocodiles have big mouths. Big mouths, no? It's the one thing you know about a crocodile or an alligator, one or the other. They have big mouths. So the Buddha talked about the crocodile or the alligator to signify uh, laziness, uh, indigence, indigence, no, indolence, indolence, not indigence, indolence. This uh, in Thai they say, in Gebakatong, which means. Uh, only thinking about your mouth and your stomach. <laughs> this is what crocodiles do. Big mouth, big stomach. So they're only thinking about eating. They're only thinking about getting. They sit around and do nothing. If you ever seen crocodiles, they sit around. Do nothing all day. Lazy lazy creatures. But humans are even worse. We can be very lazy and just lying around all day doing nothing. Or sitting around all day watching television or sitting all day around all day playing computer games. Never thinking to do good things. Never thinking to help other people. Never thinking to help ourselves. This gets to you after a while. It's not something that you can... Nothing in this world is static. You can't um, cling to things and think that they're going to last or think that your clinging is going to stay put. You can't be lazy and think that it's going to some, be something you maintain. It gets worse and worse and more, un, more unpleasant until you become irritable and you become un, an unpleasant person to be around. And become less uh, resilient to difficulties. There was uh, there was a monk like this, kind of like this, who they had this very big, important Buddhist ceremony, and he wouldn't come out and join. And there's this not a ceremony, um, a program where the monks have to have to confess their offenses to all the monks in the monastery. And one monk wouldn't come out and do it. There was a monk who had a television in his room and. He, he, he made excuses like he didn't believe in what they were doing, he thought it was all a farce and so on. But I think he's just lying, sitting in there watching television. But So they all came around his kuti, around his hut, and they knocked on his door because they're like, you know, you have to come out, we have to confess to you. And this monk who was telling me this story, saying, we're knocking on the door, pounding on the door, and then I'm thinking, but what if he's entered into some trance? What if he's entered into some meditative attainment and we're breaking him out of that? And just as he thought this, he said, just as I thought this, he, the door burst open and this red-faced monk comes out and starts yelling at him. And so he obviously wasn't in his trance. His meditation wasn't going so well. It gets, more, it gets quite difficult. It's something that's a quite, quite a danger. It becomes, because eventually you, you, your, your mind inclines towards luxury. And you, you know, when when anything comes that um, threatens it, you uh, you think, well, why am I here when I have to face all these? Why don't I go back home and I can go lie around and not have anyone bother me? Very easy to. Um, it's also easy to stay as a monk and be lazy and and uh, indolent in some places. Like this monk, many monks are able to have their televisions and do nothing, which you might think is even more scary. It's something that certainly gets you off the path. It's easy to think that you're on the path. You can live in a monastery, you can live as a monk, and um, actually be be quite quite far off the path. And you pull the whole monastery off, and 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 
many communities in, in Buddhist monastic communities that you see are quite off track. I saw a, uh, someone's, one of my students from Los Angeles sent me a, a video, a link to a video of monks in, I shouldn't even say where, but monks and Buddhist monks of some sort who uh, opened a bar watching this monk behind the bar serving drinks. It was called, uh, what was it? I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, it's this, really a monk owns, this, he's owned the bar for 13 years and all the people sitting around drinking and chanting. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no music. This is not, I know this, I'm not, this isn't, I'm not making this up. They do, he, he rings the, he's got one of those bowls, and he ding, 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 and then he does the, they do the chanting, and, uh, and he serves drinks. And this one woman was saying, oh, the world out there defiles my mind so much, so I come in here to purify, and she's got a cocktail in her head. <laughs> and, uh, quite interesting. Can you imagine, we're sitting around... Before we before we before we do our chanting, everyone has to have a martini. So getting this is something that really that interferes with your practice. It's another thing that interferes with your practice. If you are lazy, if you are always thinking about food and always thinking about sleep and always thinking about luxury. Number two. Number three is a whirlpool. What is the whirlpool? The whirlpool, I'm going to get these mixed up, but I'm going to do it my way. Whirlpool, I think, is sensuality. So the senses, they pull you down, 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 down. Um, we're like a barber sharpening our knife. Or we're like a, let's say, a, a warrior, a samurai, sharpening our sword. Have you ever seen those turbo jinsu knives? You can cut tomatoes, cut beer cans, and then cut tomatoes. And your knife has to be very sharp. Uh, and uh, this is like, you have to, you have to, you have a very high mind when you practice meditation, when you're, in the meditative state, your mind is so clear and so pure, you're able to catch everything. Uh, but to do it, your mind has to be sharp. And as you sully your mind, as you dirty your mind, as you cling to sights and sounds and smells, as you get uh, caught up in beauty and desire, music and tastes and sounds and smells and so on, it drags you down. You lose that clarity. You're no longer here. You're no longer clear. Your mind is no longer pure. It's just like a whirlpool that pulls you down. And number four, everyone's wondering what the shark is, no? I probably got it the wrong way around, but I like it this way better. And I can't remember whirlpool, shark, which one's which. But the shark is, uh, if I remember correctly, it's uh, romance. The, the Buddha was talking to the male monks and he said it's women. Women are the sharks. But it goes just as well. For, it, it, just, it means for the opposite gender or, or even the same gender if you're so inclined. It means for, for romance, for uh, sexual attraction. No longer just it's not it's it's more than just a whirlpool now. This is Jaws, and it keeps coming and coming and coming. This happens actually. Some monks are are forced to disrobe. One monk, he was a monk with me. No, he was a monk before I was a monk for seven years. He had disrobed and he came and and stayed with me for a while. And he told me his story. One of his students fell in love with him and said she was going to kill herself if he didn't disrobe and, and marry her. Like Jaws. <laughs> There's no escaping sometimes. 
They just cling. But it, but that, really, the the person is nothing. The person is not the jaws. The jaws is the desire inside. It's like a snake in the grass. When you look at the grass, if you don't see the snake, you think, "Wow, that's so nice." And you go running through the grass, and then you step on the snake, and oh, and poison gets you. Defilements are like that. They can be. We can. Everyone here looks quite calm and peaceful. But imagine if you. The, object of your desire was right in front of you and the snake comes up and bites the shark bites and it's it's incessant it's unstoppable you need this kind of perseverance like these two men who've killed jaws if all you're left with is a little board that you, know, you get the paddle back to shore on you have to be ready to fight to the death you need this kind of uh, resilience or this kind of uh, fortitude of mind because we're fighting with very difficult enemies very very cunning and uh, uh, dangerous enemies they've been plaguing us for some, the hold of samsara countless lifetimes it's a scary journey. It's something that we maybe don't even aren't even sure we want to go on. We're not sure that we want to give these things up often. It can be the scariest thing to have to think about giving up sensuality, becoming a monk. Do I even want to do that? Question first question isn't even should I do or could I do that? It's should I do that? Should I really give up my attachments to people? my desires for things? Is Nibbana really, how could it really be this wonderful, perfect happiness that the Buddha talked about? You know, we have faith in the Buddha, but I don't know. <laughs> I was with you up until the Nibbana thing, you know. <laughs> it really is often like that, right? Okay, impermanent suffering, I get non-self, I don't know. What happens to myself? What will happen to me? But I love my wife. I love my girlfriend. I love my children. I love my parents. I love cheesecake. <laughs> I keep talking about cheesecake, and so people have started bringing me cheesecake. Please, I'm not, I'm not hinting at anything. This is just the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I've noticed that since I started talking about cheesecake, it comes quite often. <laughs> Thank you. Um, good calories, but uh, certainly not necessary. I'm never overly fond of cheesecake. It's nice food, but it's not a hint for it by any means. So this is, we need encouragement, you see. We need to know what we're facing if we don't practice and we have to be ready for what we're going to face if we do practice. All the time there's going to be these doubts that come up. Maybe it's good just to sit around and do nothing. Maybe it's good to just lie in bed and be lazy. Seems good. Maybe these things that I cling to are actually going to bring me happiness. So we have to be careful. We have to be strong. Because deep down we know it's not true. We see it's not true. We see the truth. We know the truth. We just have to be honest with ourselves and we have to encourage each other and encourage ourselves. And we have to stick together as a group and we need to open monasteries and visit monasteries and come and stay at monasteries and ordain at monasteries. We have to boldly go where we've never gone before. We have to seek out the final frontier <laughs> this is not space, it's the final frontier is inside ourselves, really. Because space is infinite. You keep going and going and going, it's just space. It doesn't ever end. The final frontier is inside ourselves. It's something uncharted, unexplored. The reason we're here is because we have never explored inwardly, because we keep exploring outwardly. So, 
This is the journey that we're undertaking. These are the dangers that we're faced with. Um, we'll be taking signatures for We'll be signing people up for ordination at the door. <laughs> so before you leave, you can sign up. Otherwise, you take a lot and <laughs> and uh, and go home and see who who gets what. No, I thank you all for coming and uh, appreciate this. This is uh, great to see people coming interested in good things, coming to practice good things. Did you get a picture of everyone? Did you get a show everyone? So people can see that, uh, can be encouraged by that as well when they see people coming to the monastery interested in good things. So I'm going to end it there. And uh, thank you all for being so patient. And everyone can take a little stretch and then we'll come back and do some group meditation.